0: If you're new here today, welcome. My name is Scott Pontier. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Glad that you came to a place that feels perhaps new to you. And if you've been around here for a long time, I hope you're sitting in your usual seats because we cannot afford to screw this game up this afternoon. Right? So don't jinx anything. If you're not in your usual seat, go find it. It'll be worth it. Okay? Uh, Do you ever have a moment where you run into a situation or a person that you were not expecting, right? Like you run into your pastor at the grocery store and suddenly you're thinking through what's in your cart. It's happened, right? Or you run into your ex when you're on a date. Or or maybe you're a student and you show up to a restaurant and one of your teachers are there. And you're like, I didn't know my teacher ate. Like I didn't know they were a real person, right? Colliding worlds, right? Whenever you have that happen and it totally throws you, for a loop. Uh, it's weirdly awkward, and I wonder if if that is so awkward to us uh, because we just never thought about that person in that environment. We like to keep our worlds a little more distinct, a little more separate. And I get it. I mean, if I run into you at a grocery store, suddenly I'm putting my Pastor Scott hat on as well, right? Uh, or if I run into somebody I went to high school with, suddenly I'm like the 16-year-old version of me and thinking through those eyes again. We tend to keep different parts of our lives separate and distinct. And in this series, we've been talking about uh, a discipleship journey that we all are all on. Not as a distinct set of rules we must follow or things we must do, but instead of persons we must become. And I referenced this last week, but one of my, or a couple of weeks ago, one of my favorite definitions of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus comes from the author Dallas Willard, and he, and he says this. He says, discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. Discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you, if he had your stresses and your problems, If he had your brother, if he had your boss, if he had your bank account, what would Jesus do in those scenarios? How do we become more like Jesus in all areas of our lives, not just keeping different parts of them disconnected? But in truth, Jesus is the thing that can unify all the areas of our lives, and we can show up as the same person everywhere we are with everyone we connect with. And so today, I want to take that a little further, and I want, to, I want to center our time this morning together around a story in Acts, Acts chapter 14. Uh, it's a story with the Apostle Paul, and in particular, it's a story about how we, as people who are on this discipleship journey, show up in particular with the next generation, with young people in particular, And yes, you can think of that as parenting. And that certainly is a great application of this perspective. But we also have relationships with young people who are not our own children. We have relationships with young people in lots of different ways. And so this idea of parenting, I want to expand that more broadly. Yes, you're parents, but maybe you're also aunts or uncles or grandparents or mentors or teachers or coaches or neighbors The truth is every single one of us interacts with the next generation a lot more than we think and a lot more just outside of our own children. And so today we're going to follow Paul's life a little bit in the book of Acts in a particular city. Uh, And then we're going to talk about this young person in his life named Timothy. Uh, And finally, I want to give us just three guideposts that guide how we interact with the next generation rather than trying to put on a different hat when we show up with our kids or with our neighbors or whoever uh, uh, this next generation might be. But how do we bring Christ as the through line to all of our relationships, including those with the next generation? So that's what we're going to do today. And I want to start in Acts chapter 14. And if you have a Bible, you can join us there. I'll have it on the screen here as well. Uh, Starting in verse 8. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame, meaning he couldn't walk. Not that he just had bad clothes or didn't support the lions. That's not what lame means in this context. Can't walk. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. So, pause for just a minute. Paul is in this city called Lystra. That's going to be really important, this city. Uh, and as he's, he's in this city and he's doing things that he often does when he goes to cities. Paul is this uh, first century missionary. and He shows up in all these places and he's talking about Jesus. And so he's here in this city, Lystra. He's talking about Jesus and he heals a man who couldn't walk and there's this crowd around them, right? Verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas, who was with Paul at this time, Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. He talked the most, so we called him Hermes. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to, to them. That's weird, right? Why are they doing this? Why look at Paul and Barnabas as they come to their city and start talking about Jesus and heal this guy? Why connect them to these Greek gods? Uh, Zeus, who's the chief of all gods, and, and then Hermes, this other god who speaks a lot. Well, believe it or not, there's a story in this culture at this time that's circulating wildly through the ancient kind of Greek communities. And it's a story that is actually still taught in English classes today by a man named Ovid. Uh, Ovid writes this masterpiece called Metamorphosis. And he writes this story, this, this, uh, this masterpiece, 30 years before Paul was in Lystra. So it is uh, essentially a new release at the box office to these people. And everyone is talking about it. Everyone's still telling it to each other. It's a, it's a common, well-known story. And the short version is this. Uh, Ovid writes about a time when the Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes, came in disguise to a, a human city. And the people because the people didn't welcome them, didn't recognize them, Zeus and Hermes destroyed the city of Lystra in particular. Lystra is in this story. So now you're starting to connect some dots. This time, the city worships Paul and Barnabas because they think, man, if Zeus and Hermes show up and do this again, we're not going to miss it. So that's kind of what's going on in the background. Back to verse 13. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and they rushed out into the crowd, shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart hearts with joy. And so they're telling them, like, no, listen, guys, this Greek story, this is all made up. Let me tell you about the true God and how he's already interacting with your lives. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. So the crowd's all in, no matter what these guys say. Then some Jews from Antioch and Iconium, other, uh, other cities, won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. Now that's a plot twist, right? You walk, into the, you walk into the city, everybody wants to offer sacrifices to you and thinks you're the greatest gods of all time. And then some other guys show up and suddenly they're trying to murder you. All of a sudden it's stoning, right? Now, whenever I used to hear the word stoning in the Bible, I used to imagine a bunch of people picking up rocks and throwing them at a person till they're dead. Historically, that's not really what stoning was. In fact, stoning was not a random thing. That didn't just happen because people wanted to. Uh, stoning was something that Jewish people took really seriously. In fact, there's an ancient book uh, of Jewish writings called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah records sort of like all the rules about how to follow the rules in the Bible. So it's rules on rules. And they have rules around stoning. And, and there were a lot, but essentially you could condense it down to this. First, the Mishnah said you could stone someone for committing the sin of blasphemy, elevating themselves to the level of God. Second, this would have to be confirmed by two eyewitnesses. Two people had to say yes this person committed the sin of blasphemy. And then third, these two eyewitnesses would lead the accused to the edge of a cliff. And the mission states that the cliff had to be uh, at least twice the height of the man. And it could be higher, but at least had to be double the height, uh, very specific. And then one of the two eyewitnesses would push the accused off the cliff. And if the fall didn't kill them, then you would drop a large stone on them. And if that didn't kill them, everyone in the crowd would then pick up stones and complete the task. So it's a very specific thing that happens with uh, Jewish folks who are really intent on following the letter of the law. So this group of Jewish people show up at the end of our story because they have been following Paul. They have been following Paul from city to city where he's preaching about Jesus, telling them about Jesus, looking for ways in which to like get him to knock it off. They don't like it. So they convince the crowds not to worship him, but kill him. These guys didn't commit the sin of blasphemy, but the crowd said they're gods, right? And so they're like, okay, you, that's close enough to blasphemy. And they lead Paul to the edge of a cliff. They drop him off. They drop rocks on him. But watch what happens next. Verse 20, Acts 14. But, After the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and he went back into the city. So Paul is stoned to death. They leave him to die. And when they think he's dead, they go back home. But he's not dead. He gets up and he goes back into the city, which is bananas. Why would you do that? Why would anybody in their right mind go, let's try that again? But that's what Paul does. Why does he go back to Lystra? That's the question. When I'm reading the story, why does this guy make that choice? Why go back to a city that not only didn't get what you were saying, right? Thought you were Zeus and Hermes. They also rejected you and they tried to kill you. In fact, in the very next chapter, uh, in Acts chapter 15, there's something called the Council of Jerusalem. And Paul and Barnabas go back to Jerusalem. And there, there's this big argument about how the Gentiles uh, can be part of the Christian faith along with the Jews. And how do we do that well? And saying, well, they don't have to get circumcised, but maybe they have to do this. And then after that whole council, he once again in Acts 15 goes back to Lystra. Why does he keep going back? What is so special about this place to Paul? Remember, Paul is the greatest missionary in the New Testament but he keeps coming back to this one spot. He could have brought that mission anywhere. And in fact, he often does. He goes to all these places, starts all these churches, but yet back to Lystra, even after they try to kill him. Here's what I think. I think that for Paul, the mission he's on in the New Testament is not an abstract idea. But for Paul, this mission, it's not just about people, it's about a person. I think for Paul, the mission he's on is personal. And that person shows up in Acts chapter 16. Paul came, to, then, Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived. Timothy lives in Lystra, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. And Paul wanted to take him along on the journey. So he circumcised him because, the Jews who, because of the Jews who lived in that area. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. So why does Paul keep coming back to Timothy? Or back to Lystra? It's for Timothy. I think Paul's mission is not abstract. It's deeply personal. It is personal to his relationship with Timothy. Who lives in Lystra. Whose mom was Jewish. Whose father was a Greek. A Gentile. So a couple of things that we know about Timothy from, from the story. First, we know that he's young. He's a young person. Because approximately five years after this, Paul writes a letter to Timothy. We call that the book of 1 Timothy. And in 1 Timothy 4, he says this, Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. And that word he uses for young, it's a Greek word, technia, which basically means a young teenager. So when he wrote this uh, this letter that we call 1 Timothy, Timothy was probably like a freshman in high school, maybe a middle schooler. So that means in our story, Timothy must be what, 10 years old, eight years old? He's a young person. So that's the first thing we know about him. Second thing we know about him is he's a mumser. Which is not a, it's, a, it's a Hebrew word. Uh, mumser is one of the harshest harshest curse words in the Hebrew language. It is an extreme racial slur. In the Jewish religious world of Timothy's day, your bloodline was the most important piece of your identity. If you were Jewish, you were God's chosen people. If you were not Jewish, you were an outsider. If you were a Gentile, and if you were half Jewish, like say maybe your mother was Jewish and your father was a Greek, you were worse You are evidence that a Jew, one of God's chosen people, rejected God's culture and sought out an outsider. And you are tarnished in your bloodline. You are an abomination. And we know, Timothy, his mother was Jewish and father was a Greek. And the word uh, mumzer is made up of, of two Hebrew words. Mum, which basically means defect, and zar, which means strange. A mumser is a strange defect. And so mumsers were not allowed to go to school with other kids. They were not allowed to attend the worship services in the synagogue. They were viewed as cursed people. So why does Paul go back to Lystra after almost getting killed? We don't know for sure. The text obviously doesn't say so, but I think he comes back for Timothy. And in verse three, it tells us that... Paul came back for Timothy and wanted to take him with him on his mission. Now later, Paul will write Timothy a handful of letters. Our Bible calls them First and 2 Timothy, and we often read them as books in the Bible, and we should. Uh, but before they were the Bible, they were just letters. And we get to read Timothy's mail from Paul. And Paul writes a lot of letters. He writes them to churches in Philippi and Corinth and Rome. But what's interesting is that his letters to Timothy are different than those other letters. In particular, how Paul addresses the letters is different in his letters to Timothy. Paul begins most of his letters by referring to the receiver in Corinth or Philippi or Rome uh, as the church or as saints or as brothers and sisters or holy people. That's kind of the language he uses at the beginning of his letters to these churches. But in Timothy, He starts it off this way in 1 Timothy 1. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in 2 Timothy, he says, To Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. To Paul, all these other Christians, these followers of Christ, are brothers and sisters. But to Timothy... You're my son. To Paul, Timothy is not just a disciple. He is a dearly loved son. Now, if we want to model our lives based on the Bible, I think one of the things that we can notice with Paul is that our mission has to be personal. Our mission has to not just be abstract. It has not just to do with people, but persons person in our life. And I think if we are to model our, our, our discipleship journey, particularly after Paul, that our mission also has to be intergenerational. It has to account for young people. So is that how you live your life? Is that how you walk out your discipleship journey? Not just as a parent with your biological children, but with young people who are around you, in your community, in your neighborhood, in your classroom, in your family. So now I wanted to establish that relationship first. I want us to to get to know this relationship a little bit between Paul and Timothy. Because now that we know it, we can look for some other things about our relationship with the next generation. About parenting in that really broad sense. But before we do that, let me give you a couple of disclaimers, okay? Disclaimer number one when it comes to talking about parenting, even in this broad sense, I am not an expert. Just want you to know that. I am not, nor do I pretend to be, an expert in parenting. There is no play by play book of parenting that works for all kids, all children are different. I don't have all the right answers. I have two boys. They are 11 months apart. They grew up in the same home with the same parents. They are wonderfully different. And I have no idea how that happened. I did not do that on purpose. I will most definitely screw them up in a very unique way that is specific to me. So just want you to know, I am not an expert on parenting. The second thing I want you to know is that neither are you. You are not an expert on parenting. Here's what I know about parenting. It comes with a lot of pain and conflict and even shame, whether it's couples who want to conceive, but can't, or whether maybe you grew up in a home with less than loving parents or absent parents. So whether it's the shame that as, par- that as parents, we're just not as good as we wanna be, or it's something else, you are not an expert. And I want you to know that you don't have to be. That is okay. You're not going to get it right. And that's fine. Because remember, we are not called to be perfect examples of Christ's love. We are called to be living examples, faithful examples. God himself is our perfect example. We are just trying our best. So, and then the third uh, disclaimer I want to give is I'm not an expert. Neither are you, but you are a parent. Even if you do not have biological children, though you certainly can think of that, you have young people in your life that you have an influence on. All of us have some kind of relationship. You coach a team, your friends have children, your church has young people, right? We are applying this broadly because the Bible does. Our commitment to the next generation as followers of Jesus is not based on DNA. That's why we chose the story of Timothy and his non-biological, true, dearly loved son. So with that in mind, I want to give you three ways in which I see Paul influencing Timothy's life that we can learn from. Okay? Okay. Uh, And first is that when Timothy is young, it seems like Paul's primary way of interacting with him is based on protection. That, That value of protecting is how Paul is interacting with him. Often the most loving thing we can do with the next generation that we influence is create rules and boundaries and guidelines and put them in place to protect them. It's don't eat that or don't touch that, or don't put that fork in that socket, right? Our kids do not understand the danger of a busy street when they're young. They don't understand the danger of too much candy or the danger of electricity. We do, and so we must help them. Paul understands this. Again, uh, Acts 15, Paul goes to Jerusalem, and they have this whole council about Gentiles, people who don't belong, and they say uh, they don't have to get circumcised. But yet in the scripture we just read, Paul goes back to Lystra, wants Timothy to go with him, and he circumcises him. He circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew his father was a Greek. So why did he do that? He just spent an entire chapter just talking with other Christians about we don't have to do that. And he wins that argument. But Paul understands something, I think, that Timothy might not. Why does Paul do this? He doesn't need to, but Timothy is still a kid and Paul is still trying to connect him. And he knows the risk if he shows up in these places with this uncircumcised mumser that the Jews he's trying to win over will hurt him, will reject him. He is in danger if he goes out with Paul. He is at risk. And so he protects him from shame, from torment or worse. Because other people will see him as a strange defect. So when we interact with the next generation, one of our jobs is to put fences around them that will allow them to be safe. It is our job to protect children, not just our own. So that's the first way I think Paul engages with this next generation relationship. The second one is what I call pace setting. He's protecting, of course, but he's also pace setting. Because it's not just our job to keep young people safe and make rules. It's also our job to, protect, to set the pace for them, to model for them how to live as a disciple, how to take next steps in our faith journey. That's our job. My kids have just gone through this rite of passage over the last couple of years of getting their driver's license. And because they're 11 months apart, it, for me, it was just like two straight years of driver's training, right? And the process we use for that, right, is we kind of take them to a parking lot. We let them get used to the feel of things. We send them to driver's training. We teach them the rules of the road. And then we go out with them while we sit in the passenger seat and say, okay, uh, don't do this, don't do that. And we try really, really hard not to scream at them. That's the job of the parent, right? Uh, and then we take them to another parking lot and we kind of teach them how to parallel park. And, uh, but sometimes we got to get out and we got to jump in the driver's seat, right? And we have to say, you stand there so you can see what it looks like when we parallel park or when we do this. Or you can see what I'm choosing to do when I'm doing it. In other words, we model it. We set the pace for them. And Paul is this pace setter for Timothy. For instance, in 2 Timothy 3, this is what Paul says to Timothy. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, suffering. Timothy, you know what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra and the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you've learned it. And what he means here is he says, Timothy, I was persecuted. I went through hard things. And you are going to do that as well. You will be persecuted. And when I was persecuted, here's what I did. So when you are persecuted, here's what you can do. It's modeling. He's setting the pace. So think about these young people that God has in your life. What pace are you setting for them? If you want young people around you to take next steps in their discipleship journey with God, what steps are you taking that you can dialogue with them, that you can show them? It is not enough simply just to set the rules for kids and they'll figure it out. Young people are looking at you, whether you know it or not. You are modeling something. So what is the pace that you are setting for the next generation? So Paul's influence on Timothy is first about protecting. Second is about pace setting. And the third thing he does is he, he's partnering with Timothy. And if you notice in the letters of Paul, he does this really specifically with Timothy in particular. Paul begins by writing uh, as Paul to a church. Hey, everybody, right? Then their letters shift from Paul To Paul, from Paul and Timothy to a church that together we're doing this, and then then the letters go from Paul to Timothy, who's leading a church. Timothy no longer is just watching Paul do all the work, or with Paul as he works. Timothy is now doing it himself. He is now a partner to Paul in this ministry. So Paul didn't just walk back into Lystra to protect Timothy. He didn't walk back into Lystra just to model uh, something to Timothy about like how we live our lives. No, he went there to get Timothy, to bring him with him so that he could be on the mission himself. Paul talks to Timothy in his letters, not as a child, but as an adult. He offers perspective and influence, but he does not talk down to him. Someone once told me that, that parenting is all about setting up those fences early on, right? So they don't run in the road or stick a fork in the socket or whatever it might be. But real parenting is also the process of taking them away. How do we move the fence slowly out so you can experience more of the world, so you can engage all these things that I engage with as an adult? And many of us, I think, forget to partner with young people. In fact, I think Paul is just following the rules that God set up for the Jewish people initially. Way back uh, in in the Torah, in Numbers chapter 8, God instructs the priestly Levites, the leaders of the faith community, uh, when the 12 tribes of Israel were wandering in the desert. This is what he says in Numbers chapter 8. The Lord said to Moses, This applies to the Levites. Men 25 years old or more shall come to take part in the work of the tent of the meeting, the tabernacle, the the portable temple. They're 25 and older. That's your job if you're a Levite. But at the age of 50, they must retire from the regular service and work no longer. They may assist their brothers in performing their duties at the tent of meeting, but they themselves must not do the work. God has a mandatory retirement age of 50. Sounds pretty nice for some of us, right? But this isn't some like move to Florida, get a place in the villages and relax kind of retirement. This is a partnership kind of retirement. This is you are assisting them. That's the kind of uh, a partnership God mandates for the spiritual leaders. And that's the kind of partnership that Paul demonstrates in his relationship with Timothy. He's protecting, he's pace sending, but he's partnering. Those are the roles we play with young people. And the real trick is to know what role we play with those we know in the next generation and when to play it. And that only comes with practice. You're going to do it wrong. But that is the goal. And so that's the question we ask today. If we are people who are following Jesus, how are we leading and living with young people? The mission cannot be abstract. It must be personal. And the mission must be intergenerational. So how are we protecting? How are we pace setting? How are we partnering with the next generation? So as we close today, I just want to give you a few questions to consider based on these observations with Paul. And question number one is, first and foremost, who are the Timothys in your life? And I don't mean just like future church planters like Timothy was or replacements for your own legacy. But who are the young people in your life, specifically ones that you feel connected to? Yes, they're your own children. Think beyond that. Who are the mumsers in your life that feel like they are a strange defect and don't connect anywhere else? Who needs someone else looking out for those people? Who are you drawn to? Can you write their names down? Not every kid in your neighborhood you might be drawn to, but is there a young person in your life that you would say, yeah, actually... I wonder what God's got in that relationship. So first question, who are the Timothys in your life? Second, what is your role in their life? Consider, are you busy protecting when you should be partnering? Are you modeling anything helpful in their life right now at all? Are you doing that intentionally to to set the pace? Is there an opportunity that is right in front of you that you are not choosing to lean into? What is your role in their life? Who are the Timothys in your life and what is the role that you can play? Now, let me take a moment, an aside, and specifically talk to men in this church. Because you have an opportunity right here. We are bursting at the seams with young people You watched a hundred of them just walk out the door 20 minutes ago, right? And I just want you to know over the last eight years in this church, the most difficulty we have had in volunteerism is men who want to connect with young people in our youth ministry. I don't know why that is. I just know that it is. We have found that men in their church are more likely to coach a team for their kids than lead a small group. And maybe that is the way you step into your next Timothy. But for years, young men in this church, young Timothys, have been missing out on their Pauls. And I don't say that to guilt you. I say that because God has an opportunity for you right now, right in this place, right in this church, to lean into this truth, to make this teaching real in someone's life. And it is an opportunity that needs you. So that's just for the guys. For everyone, who are the Timothys in your life and what role is, do you have in their life? So finally, third question, really simple one. We ask it a lot around here. Now that you've answered those other two, the third one is what's your next step? What is one concrete thing that you can do? You don't have to have the whole playbook written. You just have to take one next step as a result of how Paul lived his life with a young person. What does that mean for you? I believe that discipleship is the process of becoming Jesus if he were you. And if he were you, he would have young people in his life, just like you do. So how are you becoming like Jesus with them? And let me end with this. You see, for some of us, we can relate to Paul. Some of us can. I think all of us can relate to Timothy. Even if we never had a Paul figure in our life, what the scriptures tell us from page one to the very last book of the Bible is that God is our father. And he is not an imperfect example of a father like I am, but he is a perfect example. Deuteronomy one, there you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way until you reached this place. Who came to us when we were cast out, when we were rejected, when we were at the ends of our ropes. That is when God, our father, wraps his arms around us and carries us like a father would. I know not all of us can relate to the Paul role and we hear the invitation today to take a step in that direction. But as we close today, I just want you to remember that that is who God is to us as Timothys as people who didn't belong, as people who didn't get it right. He sent his only son to die for us so that we could experience that love. And my hope is that we live and become more and more like Christ with every single person in every scenario we find ourselves. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we're grateful today that um, your gospel is not segmented. It's not compartmentalized. It's not divided into different worlds that keep us comfortable, but God, that your gospel is nuanced and total for our entire lives. God, I recognize that we don't always uh, live into that in the ways that Paul has demonstrated today with young people. Uh, And so I pray for opportunity. I pray for our next steps. I pray that you would work inside of our hearts, God, and that you would show us clearly how we can lean into a Timothy. Who do you have in our lives, God, that we can step towards? And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.